0: So we're in this series of James, the book of James. We've got three weeks left, and uh, I think, and not just because I'm preaching it today, but talking with Andy and uh, in conversation about today's message, we think this is the most important one. We think this is the, the place in the book of James where, where it's like he, he takes back the, the curtains, the veil, the cover, and says, okay, here's the real deal. Here is the heart of the issue. And so hopefully you'll find this this message is is significant, hopefully it makes a difference because uh, it is so, so important. If we miss what James is saying in this section, then I think the danger is that we can misunderstand the whole of James. We can turn the whole book into a sort of practical how-to manual for Christian living. And it's so much more than that. Uh, just a reminder, we had a break last week, so just to get us back in the flow with James. James was half-brother of Jesus, same mother, different father, obviously because of the whole you know God part of it. And so James grew up with Jesus as his older brother. He watched him, he observed him, he knew him, he probably got frustrated with him the way siblings do when other siblings don't sin. And so he, he kind of grew up with that and saw that, but then when Jesus went public around 30 years of age, and started doing the miracles and the teaching, and and the rumors started spreading, and people started saying, could this be the Messiah? Is this the one that God was going to send? James and the rest of the family said, no, we know him. It's Jesus. Don't be silly. He must be going mad claiming these things. And so while Jesus was doing his ministry, James was watching and saying, no, I'm a skeptic. He is not from God. And the amazing thing about it is that then once Jesus died on the cross, which is like the ultimate shameful way to die, the whole family, you would think, would then be shamed and go into retreat, right? try to distance themselves from Jesus. But instead, almost immediately, we see this turn in James where he becomes right at the center a leader of the followers of Jesus, a lead worshiper, somebody who's saying, let's worship my half-brother. Now, that's not going to happen Just because it's the thing to do, right? That's not going to kind of be swept up in the kind of the hype of the moment kind of a thing from James. For James to be transformed that radically, it must have taken something major. And we're told what the major thing was he met the risen Christ. As in Jesus met him, spoke to him, maybe embraced him, maybe uh, ate food with him. That There's this sense that when they met, James went, okay, if you can come back from the dead, I'll believe you. If, 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 if you've come back from the dead, then everything you said, I'm going to have to reprocess that because that must be true and, and you must be from God. And I wonder, I was just thinking about this, I wonder if he had a conversation with Mary at some point after Jesus rose from the dead and said, okay, rewind, is there anything you want to tell me about how Jesus kind of came about in the first place? I wonder if they had a little sit down and a cup of tea and Mary said, well, James, I've never really shared this with you, but there was this angel and, and you know we weren't married and, and maybe she felt comfortable to share with James the reality of that first Christmas. I don't know, I'm just speculating, but James was transformed. And James went from being an absolute skeptic to an absolute sold-out follower of Jesus. And the one thing that I just get struck by again and again as I go through this this letter that he wrote, James did not have time for token Christianity. He wasn't buying into the idea of nominal Christianity, of Sunday-only Christianity. For James, it was all or nothing. For James, it was all because... Jesus rose from the dead. And so he was so gripped by that, he wrote this letter that is very practical. It's as practical as you would expect something to be written by somebody raised by a carpenter. And yet it is something that just below the surface is incredibly rich theologically. He is going after something where he wants the people who are calling themselves Christians to really be captivated and transformed by Jesus it's almost like he could have written that hymn, which he didn't. I know, you know, I know the difference sixteenth century makes. But it's almost like he could have written that hymn where it says, "Love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all." And that's what this epistle's saying. If, if Jesus is who he says he is, which he is, proven by the resurrection, then the demand is total. Let's not be wishy-washy, half in, half out, Sunday, yes, the rest of the week, no. Let's be sold out for Jesus, fully his, because he's worth it. And so we come through uh, the letter, and we get to chapter four, where we are today. And it feels like he's going to continue on in the same vein that he's been on so far. Okay, So so far, he's talked about, in chapter 1, our responses to difficult times with prayer, our responses to God's word with action. Um, he, he's talked in chapter 2 about not being worldly in our view of people, and kind of, you know, while well, they're rich, we'll treat them this way, and while well, they're poor, we'll treat them that way. He's talked about not just saying you're a Christian, but actually living it out. In chapter 3, he's, he's talked about the tongue and said, look... What comes out of your mouth should be fitting for, for who you are. There shouldn't be kind of salt water and fresh water pouring forth from the same spring. He's talked about wisdom, saying, okay, that the way you're viewing things, it's either from God or it's also possible that it's from the devil. It's, it's worldly, demonic wisdom where you see things in a way that God is not at the center of. And, and so it's a very challenging book. And when we get into chapter 4 he goes right into what feels like more of that kind of practical stuff. Let's have a look at it. Um, Sorry, I didn't get page number. Anyone got the page? 1012 still. It's been 1012 for about five weeks. Okay, so 1012, chapter four, the big number four. Notice the first line, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? That Sounds like James, right? He's Dealing with the practical stuff of Christians, churchy people, squabbling over the biscuits or whatever the issues were in those days. Verse 2, he says again, uh, you fight and quarrel. Practical stuff, right? Go down to verse 11. In verse 11, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? And so he, he's, he's talking to them saying, look, you're, you're kind of like a naturally... The worldly way of existing would be to kind of squabble and argue and and criticize and gossip and malign and tear down. and Oh, did you hear? And guess what she said? And you wouldn't believe what he did. And all of that kind of stuff. And and James goes, don't do that because the law says love one another. And if you're going to say, well, the law doesn't matter. I need to be able to say what I want to say. Then what you're saying is God doesn't matter. I'm going to assert my right to be godlike to make the evaluations, to, to judge unhelpfully and inappropriately. And James is saying, no, 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 God is God, you're not. And so it, it needs to, you need to be careful with how you're interacting with one another and especially about one another. So it's very practical. But the reason I jumped down to verse 11 was because I want us to now go back and see that between verses 1 and 10... He doesn't remain at that level of practical, you could say superficial, that's not the word I mean, but kind of the pragmatic outworkings of Christianity. He doesn't stay there. Instead, what he does is he, he, he kind of takes back the veil and says, okay, you want to know what's really going on? You want to know what the real deal is as far as Christianity is concerned? You want to know what's under the bonnet? Let me show you. It's a bit like Top Gear of old when they actually used to talk about cars properly and they'd say, okay, here's this car and it goes this fast. Let's look under the bonnet and see, oh, it's a 7.2-liter engine, V8 or whatever. And the engine was kind of significant, right? Well, that's kind of what James does in this section. He says, all right, let's lift the bonnet on the Christian life and let's see what's driving it. So let's look at those first three verses because what we're going to find is that the visible fruit in our lives, reveals an unseen root. And that root is our heart. The engine that drives us is our heart. So look at these first three verses. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. That sounds quite serious. Just comment on that in case you're panicking that I'm talking about us. I, it could be that you know murders have happened based on differences of opinion in churches, sad to say. It could be at that level, or he could be doing what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount where he said, you know, it, the, the law says do not murder, but I tell you, if you're angry with your brother, you've committed murder. It's that kind of, you know, the, the, the trajectory of our hearts when we get infuriated with someone, when we curse them, which he's been talking about in chapter three, that's the same trajectory that ultimately ends in murder. He could be just talking at that level, but not just. You know what I mean? It's, it's serious. But it's the desires. It's the, the churning within. So let me get back to the text. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, Okay, so let's pause there. What he's saying is, okay, what's going on in the Christian life? Lift up the bonnet. What's driving this thing? There's an engine. And that engine is the passions and the desires. It's the wants within us. It's true, isn't it? Why, why is there ever a, a, a tension in a relationship? It's always tied to, well, I wanted this. Or I wanted to feel this way. Or I didn't want to do that. Or I didn't want to be treated that way. It's always want-driven. And so there's this churning passion, desire, values, wants that that is driving us. And and James is saying that is spilling out in fighting and quarreling. The image that came to my mind as I was thinking about this was, you know that... um, well, maybe this is slightly terrifying, but going from the McDonald's counter back to the table, imagine that at the table you've got about eight untrained, undisciplined six-year-old boys, all right? and you've got two trays with Happy Meals on. It's kind of like the birds in a nest, you know, with the mouths open. Except these little birds will fight each other. Do you know what I mean? You bring in the the trays over and they're just, oh, I want, I want, I want. And all their wants drives the elbows up and they're pushing each other back. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. Just ask and I will give you the food. But they're kind of going for it. And the truth is, as a parent, or even just as an adult, even if I've got other people's children with me, I will feed them. It's this weird thing, right? Where If they, if they say to me, uh, oh, actually, I'm, I'm really hungry. Is it possible to have something to eat? I don't know. Call me benevolent. But I go, okay. And I give them food. But six-year-old boys, untrained, undisciplined in McDonald's, they don't ask. They just squabble. They just fight as if I'm not there, Right? Or they ask, but really they're asking, I want that one because I know what toy it's got in it. And it's totally selfish. And again, maybe it's just me as a parent. I don't tend to respond nicely if, I'm, you know, if they're demanding for selfish reasons. But any child in the world that says I'm hungry, I'd give them food. And I'm a human with flaws. How much better is God and God's looking at these clamoring six-year-old untrained humans who are all wrapped up in themselves, squabbling and fighting and, and begging and demanding and all the rest of it. And he's like, just, just ask. I'll give you what you need. But don't ask selfishly in a grabby, I want to be the king of the universe kind of way. Just ask dependently. There's a difference between a demanding six-year-old and a dependent child. And and James here is saying, you know what? Your natural state as a human is more like the demanding six-year-old. It's selfish. Naturally, it will have a roughness about it because ultimately it's all about me. But, But the gospel changes that. Christianity changes and transforms that. In Christianity, we go from having uh, kind of a, a distant relationship with God where He's sort of the, the one who does acts of God, right? You know, like all the things the insurance companies won't cover. That's the level of relationship for most people. And He, and he becomes Father. And we become dependent children. And we can go to Him and say, oh, Father, I, I need this. I, I need to feed my family, or I need to. I've got this situation or this difficulty, or I need wisdom in this struggle. And, and what we discover is that God is giving, and He's kind, and He's generous, and He's not playing hard to get or hide and seek or anything like that. He's on our side. And James is saying to them, "Look, the the real issue. It's not with God; it's with you. And it's not even the quarrelling and the fighting. It's your hearts. It's the desires and the passions." inside. It's what's going on under the bonnet. Now, from verse 4 on, he addresses that and he resolves that problem. And, and before we look at it, let's just try to imagine what would we expect James to say. The problem is your passions, your desires, kind of out of control. The solution it's obvious isn't it get your passions under control stop wanting so much stop being so selfish stop you know stop desiring stuff get it under control to use the car analogy you'd expect him to say okay yep, yeah, that's the engine under the bonnet change the way you're driving you determine to stop fighting and quarreling right that makes sense or even we've got to change the engine We've got to go from this kind of yucky kind of diesel thing that's under there and put in an electric thing, totally different engine. You'd expect something that would would address and dismiss somehow those passions, get them under control, suppress them, control them, squash them, stop being driven by what you want. That's what we would expect because that's what we've been told by our culture, by our parents, by the church. The problem is your desires. The solution is you stop it. And so what you'd expect, I think, from verse four onwards is for James to say, okay, the problem is your passions. The solution is your self-control, your discipline, your new way of living, your determination to change, your resolutions. And he doesn't do any of that. You see, what he does, and this is the thing that we've we've got to, to, I I hope, feel the force of, is he says, okay, the problem under the bonnet is your passions and your desires. The solution is for me to show you under the bonnet, in quotes, of God. Let me show you what drives God. Because that's the issue here, not your self-control. What is under the bonnet, what is going on for God in this whole situation. So look at verses four, five, and six. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Okay, what does that tell us about what's going on in God's heart? What's going on under the bonnet for God? Well, he views them, he views us, according to verse 4, as adulterous people. That sounds pretty harsh. Okay. Now, it could be, at uh, one level, you might think, well, James is talking to a specific group of people and there's a lot of adultery going on, right? No, it, it isn't that, and here's why. In verse 6, he talks about God being jealous. And so it's not talking about the male-female relationships within the church. It's talking about God's relationship with the church, He's yearning jealously. He's united the believers together with his son by the Spirit. And the Spirit that he's made to dwell in us believers, he's longing for that connection to be to to the max. But go back to verse four. James didn't actually write, you adulterous people. What he wrote was, you adulteresses, as in, you straying wives. Now that, that feels slightly awkward to about half of us because we go, call me a wife. Right? He doesn't say, you adulterous husbands and wives. He says, you adulterous wives. And he's not picking on the women. What he's saying is that you believers, the bride of Christ, are straying. You're going off after other lovers All of this worldliness, the desires, the passions, the the things that are so important to you, as if those things will somehow satisfy, it's proof that you're not loving me. And so you see God's heart was starting to be revealed there. Some years ago, maybe 20, 30 years ago, there was a kind of a fashion in Christian world of people talking about the father heart of God. If you're kind of my age or above and you were in church world, you maybe remember all the Father Heart of God books and Father Heart of God messages and so on. That's good. But this is talking about the husband heart of God. That God has the heart of a husband for his bride, for us. A heart that yearns jealously for an exclusive mutual devotion. And he's saying to them, you're you're living according to the world system. You're living with worldly values, worldly desires, worldly passions. And it hurts me because I see you as my bride. Don't don't you get that you're flirting with the world? It's not something that I can just sit back and, and ignore. It bothers me. Now, what does that look like for Christians to be flirting with the world? It's probably not like the most obvious kind of example, where we go to church on a Sunday and then, you know, during the week pop into the Hindu temple and make an offering to some other gods in there, and then maybe on the Friday join, you know, join in a prayer room or mosque worship, you know, pray to some other god. And you know, it, it probably isn't that for most of us, right? And if you're if you're struggling with a pull towards the Bahá'í faith, talk to us. But that's probably not where we're at. But you see, as you go through the Bible, this image of God's straying, unfaithful wife isn't just limited to going off after other gods. It's also wrapped up in the idea of going off after the world, after the lie that God is not enough, that Christ is not enough, that that somehow I need something else to satisfy me. Think about it in human terms. If, If you're chatting with a friend, maybe at work, maybe at church, and you get the sense that this person is is doing everything they can to avoid being with their spouse. It would concern you right? They play golf for no offense, but they you know maybe play golf for thirty seven hours on a Saturday, you know just because otherwise they'd have to be home it doesn't seem to make sense, or fishing, or whatever. It's not, that, it's not just that someone has to go to the hotel and meet with that person that they've been flirting with at work and kind of have an affair. It's possible to, to be going away from your spouse for things that in themselves aren't wrong, like sports and hobbies and interests and work and career and, and to just be throwing yourself into other stuff. But you see, the, the problem with those things is when you say, I don't want to be with you, I'd rather be at work. I don't want to be with you, I'd rather watch this film. I don't want to be with you, I'd rather be with my friends. The problem is not the, the other thing, it's the I don't want to be with you. And in exactly the same way, we can do exactly the same thing with God. We can say, you know what God, I know that I should probably read this, but I'm going to get through this as quick as I can because I'd rather be reading something else. I know that I should pray, but I'd rather just do a token prayer and be done with it because I need to really be watching that TV show or, or surfing the web or getting uh, to work and giving my 18 hours to my job or, or whatever it is. I'd rather leave you out and I'd rather pursue this. You see, once you put that kind of language into a marriage context, it hurts, doesn't it? It's a sign of a brokenness. It's not simply the act of adultery that is damaging to a marriage. It's that drift. The heart of adultery is that drift. I'd rather not be with you, and so I'm going to pursue my satisfaction somewhere else. And so all the good things in our lives potentially could be areas in which we are flirting with the world. Where we're saying, God, you don't satisfy me, I need to read this. God, you don't satisfy me, I, I need to watch that. God, you don't satisfy me, I need to play this game. Or uh, you don't satisfy me, I'm going to put my energies into this hobby, or into this career, or into this job, or into this other thing. And you see that all of those things could be good. In the same way that ho- hobbies could be okay in a marriage. There's nothing wrong with Hobbies. Especially when we bring the spouse along. When there's a connection, where, when there's an acknowledgement and a recognition that being with you is the greatest thing. Being with you is where I'm going to be satisfied. And if the spouse is God, then surely he's good enough. Imagine that you're counseling a friend at work. And you've had the flags, you know, the warning flags going for a while. You've been a bit concerned about the way she talks about her husband and then how she gradually is no longer talking about her husband. And then she's taking the lunch breaks and the extended lunch breaks. And you're going, what's going on? Where is she going? And, you know, gradually you discover that, that there's an adulterous situation going on. The temptation to counsel that person is to say, you made vows, you made commitments, you need to be a good wife, get your act together, fix it, stop it, don't do it. That wouldn't work. Surely the the better response is to say, what about your husband? Think about your husband, He, he loves you. He would would die for you. He would do anything for you. You want to somehow try to redirect the, the, the eyes of the heart back towards the spouse so that there can be that connection. And of course, on a human level, that doesn't always work because they might say, well, if you knew my husband like I, then you'd think you'd be cheering me on. But what if the husband is God, who for all eternity has and will completely satisfy the father delighted by the son, the son delighted in the father, that son is our groom. And if he can thoroughly thrill and satisfy and delight the father for all eternity, how is it possible that we could get bored? That we could say, Jesus, you're not enough for me. I'm bigger than your father. I need something more than you. Jonathan Edwards, um, the the writer, not the triple jumper, about 300 years ago, preached a sermon where he was talking about the journey towards heaven. And he was anticipating heaven, and he was saying, you know what, what we have in this world, it teases us, and it tempts us, it kind of flirts with us. As if it's gonna satisfy, as if it's enough, but it's not. He he said, what we have here, it's just the shadow, but God is the substance. What we experience here is the odd beam of light, but God is the sun, What we experience are drops of water, but God is the ocean. And he just paints this picture of why would we be satisfied or why would we even think that we could be satisfied chasing after things in this world and leaving God out of it. Makes no sense. These are but streams. He is the fountain. And you see, the beauty of this passage is that even though James comes across a bit like a hammer, you know, kind of boom, you adulteresses, he goes right after it. What he's doing is he's revealing, he's not commanding. In verses 4, 5, and 6, he's making statements. He's not telling them what to do. He's saying, this is reality. This is the way God views it. God, the perfect groom, is longing for you to come back to him. He wants you to stop flirting with that guy at work, and to stop flirting with that hobby and interest, and to stop flirting with all the things that this world offers you, and instead to come back to him and say, okay, I know that I'm only ever ultimately going to be satisfied with you. I need you. Would you bring me home? Would you take me back? It's like the book of Hosea, where Hosea is told by God, go and marry this woman who's Life is the life of a harlot. And Hosea goes off and, and wins her and then she strays and then he goes after her to woo her back again. You see, the heart of a husband is not to destroy. There's anger when that sort of thing occurs. There's, there's hurt, there's anger. But ultimately, the heart of a good husband is, I so want you back. And so therefore, James quotes from Proverbs and says, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble what does that look like in in an adulterous situation maybe it goes something like this you know I've been reading your emails and I've, I've overheard you on the phone and I've, I've followed you and I've seen you at work and I've watched you go into that motel and I know that when you went away to that conference there was no conference and, and there's the kind of the confrontation that, that can come and then the response of the person who's been caught that says, no, doesn't matter, I, I, I'm fine, I, I can do whatever I want, that's proud. That's don't you challenge me. Pride says, I don't need you. And so God as the loving husband can confront and he can challenge and he can convict. But if our response is, no, I know what I'm doing and I can do life my way, then God opposes that because it's not what he calls us to. But when we break and we say, oh, what a fool I've been. I am so sorry. And we break down before him. He gives us grace. He embraces us. He welcomes us back. And the thing that struck me as I was looking at this passage is that I don't think there's hardly a day that goes by where I don't need to do that, where I don't need to come back to God and say, God, I'm sorry, my heart has strayed. For a couple of hours there, I thought this would satisfy me instead of you. I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? And the beautiful thing about God is that day after day after day, year after year, for the rest of this life, he will embrace us. He'll forgive us. He'll help us to know how wonderful he is. Which is why the the response comes in verses 7 and following And if you keep it in the marriage image, it works so well. What's the right response if once you catch a glimpse of God's heart as your husband who longs for you to to give yourself only to him? Verse 7, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What he's saying here is that other thing that you're flirting with, is really the devil. The guy at work who pays too much attention, the hobby, the interest, the website, the other things that we occupy ourselves with in order to stay busy and not... And not really think about God for a while. Resist that. Push that away. Say, okay, enough of that. And maybe for some of us that needs to be something very tangible. Maybe it need, means okay, blocking a certain website or, or, or getting rid of a certain aspect of our lives. And it doesn't have to be a sinful thing, it could be a good thing, but it's a good thing that's drawing our hearts away from God. Maybe it's time to say, you know what? I'm going to get a barrel and I'm going to light a fire and I'm going to put that in there. Some many years ago, uh, I, bought a, I was in a shop and they had, you know, the little game controller things? Game controller to go with a PC. And I thought, oh, that'd be fun. I used to love playing football games. And after a couple of days of getting drawn into this football game, I knew that this was drawing me away. It wasn't, thing, you know, it wasn't carjackings or crime or anything. I was you know, playing football on the screen. But that had to go in the bin, and I had a ceremony at the Burger King where I got rid of it and just said, God, I'm sorry, I can't have one of those in my life because it just draws me too much away from you. Maybe for some of us, we need to go home and put something in the bin. Get rid of some aspect of life that is drawing us, pulling us away from God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God. Respond to the one who's already drawn near to you. By drawing near to him and and he'll draw near to you. There's a, a, a reciprocal connection there. How often can we say, oh, yeah, I've tried quiet times, but God seems too distant. We give up. What if we said, okay, God, you've already proven that you want to have a close relationship with me. You proved that on the cross. And so I want to have a closeness with you that I've never had before. I'm gonna gonna read the Bible. I'm gonna pray. I'm gonna gonna carve out time in my schedule. I'm gonna treat this as an absolute priority. Do you really think that God's gonna go, stuff you, not interested? I think often we just give up too easily. We want something magical and mystical and instant. And instead, God's like, okay, come on, spend time with me. Because what he wants is that draw near, close relationship where you walk through the good times and the bad times together, where you share your heart with him, where you hear his heart, where you talk to him and involve him in every aspect of life. God longs for that kind of connection with us. And so when we haven't had that, or when we've messed around by going off after other things, the natural response, when we get a glimpse of his heart, is what we see here. To cleanse our hands, to purify our hearts, to to be wretched, to be mourning and weeping, all the flirtatious, silly, happy laughter, to say, you know what, I'm going to weep because I need this, I need you, Lord. You see that the passage keeps that adultery theme and it keeps the the heart of God right there all the way through. And and, and my prayer for us is that we would say, actually, I need that. It's easy to say other people need it, but no, I need that. I need to spend some time with God and say, God, I'm sorry. I've I've treated other things as potential satisfiers, as potential... uh, Joys, as potential delights, things that maybe will make my life feel right, instead of trusting you to give me life to the full. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Like a, a wife who has strayed into an adulterous relationship and then disco- is discovered and is convicted by that and is broken before a loving husband and cries out to him, just broken, weeping on the floor, he will exalt you and embrace you and bring you close to his heart. That's what God wants for us. To have and to hold. For better, for worse, in sickness and in health. Forsaking all others until death brings us face to face. That was the proposal. That was the offer that was given to us on the cross. What's our response? Because that is the heart of Christianity. That is the very core issue. It's not how we behave and how we act and whether we say nice things or bad things. It's not about that stuff. That's the overflow. The heart is our response to his husband heart. So let's take some time, even as we come to communion, just to think about the husband heart of God. He went to extreme lengths to propose. Maybe you've seen the YouTube clips. They're becoming a bit of a thing these days. The most elaborate proposals possible. Some of them are great. Some of them are tearjerkers. A lot of them are really fun. But the ultimate proposal was when Jesus hung on the cross and said, I love you this much. And I want you to be in my family. I want to be united with you by the Spirit. I want us to be one Spirit forever, forsaking all others. Will you let me be yours? Will you be mine? And so as we take the bread and the the juice, let's think on the cross as a marriage proposal. Let's think on it as a marriage recommitment. A moment in time where maybe God's Spirit has put his finger on things in our lives. Some may be overtly sinful, others may be in themselves neutral, but they've drawn us away. And again, as we are represented with the cross of Christ, the offer, the demonstration of God's love for us, let's think about the husband heart of God who longs to embrace us and longs to hold us close. And all he asks of us is that we don't rise up proud and full of ourselves and acting like we can handle life without him. He asks us just to be broken before him. To say, I need you, Lord. Only you can satisfy. Only you are worth living for. Thank you for dying for me.